This special Editor's Choice edition of the JCMS podcast is made possible by an educational grant from AbbVie, made available through the CDA Corporate Supporter Program. Welcome to this special Editor's Choice edition of the JCMS podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Barber. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of the journal Cutaneous Medicine and Surgery. For those of you who know me, you understand that I have developed a dysphonia, and hopefully you won't find that too distracting because we have great guests today. After the success of our last episode on gypsy moth dermatitis, we decided to get back into bugs and to try and look at more insect-related dermatological issues. Today, we're gonna look at Lyme disease and other ticks, and we're gonna talk about bed bugs and spiders. So um, back with us uh, to discuss this is Dr. Melinda Gooderham. She's the medical director at the Skin Center for Dermatology in Peterborough, Ontario, and is an assistant professor at Queen's University. And uh, she also works as a consultant physician at the Peterborough Regional Health Center. And the guest of honor today is Professor David Beresford, an entomologist at Trent University in Peterborough. Welcome again, David, Melinda. We're going to talk ticks, <laughs> hey? not TikTok. Like in Silence of the Lambs, but we're going to talk ticks. And so we've got lots of tick-borne diseases in your part of the world, not so much in mine. So uh, I'll let Beninda start off with the questions. Yeah. So, yeah, thanks a lot, David. I have so many tick questions. Uh, when, I, when I think back to when I was in residency or medical school and we were taught, you know, a tick has to be present for 24 hours uh, on someone to to be able to to transmit uh, Lyme disease. So we had this sort of idea that it was not that common, but things have been changing lately. I've been seeing a lot of cases that are positive, like classic rash for Lyme disease, positive uh, serology, but no history of a known tick uh, in these patients. So I've been doing a little bit of reading about it, and I'm and I'm I, I I've been learning a lot, and hope that you can um, sort of share with the with the listeners what's been going on in the world of ticks and how I mean we've always had ticks, but they seem to be increasing. Is that right? Well, certainly they're they're here now, and they were never here before. They I think they were first seen here in. 2009, maybe, uh, on the uh, Prince Edward County area, uh, on the lakeshore. But one of the things about Southern Ontario is is there's a lot of rapid change in climate over a very short distance because of the Great Lakes Climate Refuge. So you have a maritime climate right on the coast, and then you just have to go inward, inland about 10 kilometers, and you hit another climate zone. So there's some very curious spread of the ticks in Ontario, usually spreading eastward, um, where there's a lot fewer cities, not as much agriculture. So they're spreading, being carried by, well, the birds and mice and deer, etc. But I was just mentioning earlier, um, I actually have never seen a black-legged tick, and I'm supposedly in a hot spot, which I find fascinating. I see the odd one on a dog maybe once every three years, and I'm out all the time in the bush. So they're here, simultaneous to that there's been an increased awareness so i think there's both things are happening yes yeah completely completely agree i think we're testing for it more um but but i've certainly been seeing more rashes in my in my clinic and hearing my colleagues discussing it as well and like you say not in areas where we've we've been seeing ticks in the past and i think they're moving into northern ontario and i mean they can be found sort of across canada but from an Ontario perspective, 
they were never in northern Ontario before, but as the climate changes, they're, they're moving north as well. I'm not so sure they're traveling west anyways. I live in Alberta. In 1991 to 2020, there were 132 cases reported of, uh, of Lyme disease. And, and all of them were from somewhere else. Ah, interesting. That is very interesting. The BZ has limited numbers. I think this is an Ontario East Coast phenomena. It's certainly linked to the white-tailed deer in our part of the world. Yeah. Uh, white-tailed deer and mice, uh, several species of mice. And they're also carried by uh, perching birds, any, like they call them passerine birds. Um, and they, they sort of bring them in. And then they become endemic in the mice and deer population. But mice and deer numbers also fluctuate dramatically depending on how deep the snowpack is in winter, the, the predator cycles that are driving them. So even where Lyme and, and these ticks are, are prevalent and have been for decades, there's still boom and bust years. You'll get several years in Connecticut where there will be virtually nothing going on and then really huge outbreaks. So I, I think we're just going to be into that kind of a situation rather than a steady state. Is, it, is, this, is this climate change? It's, it's hard to say climate change yeah. per se, because climate change is a is a long-term process. And to to claim that the spread of, a, of an invertebrate is being driven by climate change, that's probably tied to it, certainly. But simultaneous to this, a lot of agricultural land is being returned to woodlands. Uh, a lot fewer people hunt. Uh, so there's more deer around, quite frankly. So there's those other things that compound that story. So the CDC says that they expect 500,000 cases this year in 2021 in the eastern okay. U.S. I mean, that's those are huge numbers uh, for, for us. And I gather Ontario see the same thing. Yeah, I really, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I, I used to think it was quite rare. And then yeah. I'm seeing these erythema migrants coming. Like, you know, I had one woman who came with just a... Just one crusted plaque with, you know, no real diagnosis. I biopsied it. It came back as insect bite reaction. I thought maybe it was excoriated and super infected. Put her on some antibiotics, Keflex. And a month later, she emailed me because I had given her my email to discuss the suture removal. So she emailed me this picture with this giant ring around my wow. biopsy site. And so I ordered serology and it was positive and she was a camper. I mean, the whole reason she had my email is because she was going on a camping trip and I wanted to communicate with her. So, um, so yeah, here we, you know, a month after doing the, the biopsy and putting her on Keflex, I had to put her on doxycycline, but you know, I'm just seeing these cases more and more. And um, it's, it's actually been fascinating because I've been reading up a, a lot more on ticks because what I had in my mind from my medical school days wasn't really fitting with these with these. Yeah. Are the rashes all typical? Well, no. And then there's different. I mean, so one of the other cases I had was so numerous um, annular erythematous lesions. But this one woman, the, the case I just told you, it had just one large ring across her back. So you can get multifocal erythema migraines, you can get singular lesions. So they really do present very differently. There's a number of different ways that that, that rash can present. So it's not a, a typical case every time. What I found most interesting was that none of my patients who had a positive test have any knowledge of a tick. Even though even the camper did not know yeah. that that she'd had a tick there. And certainly some of the other patients were not outdoorsy people. 
you know, one guy who lived in in a, in a city and rarely went, you know, maybe just took his dog for a walk on his street. So it's that's really what I found most fascinating and learning about, you know, the adult versus the um, what are they called? The nymph, like the yeah. adolescent tick. Yeah. They're only about a millimeter. So, you know, they're a millimeter and you don't feel them biting you because of their special saliva with its anesthetic properties and anticoagulant properties. So they attach on there. You don't even feel them there. So unless you're doing a, a body check every time you go outdoors, I could see how it would be missed, especially if it's only one millimeter in size. So fever yeah. at any of these folks? Not prominent. I mean, I'm sure if you monitored their temperature, there might have been something, but that wasn't a com like a... Nothing. Did they have any other symptoms? Uh, one guy felt a bit tired. I mean... A bit the, odd. Yeah, a bit off. Eh? The woman with the ring on her back, it was her husband that saw it when she got out of the shower one day. She didn't even know it was there. David, how do humans get this? The ticks carry it. No, not all the ticks do, but enough of them do that we would get it. And so as you're walking around, uh, the ticks do a thing called questing. They stand up on the vegetation and they hold their their limbs out to just patiently waiting for something to brush them. Then they grab, then they insert their mouth parts in and you don't see that or feel it. Um, and then they spit in the anticoagulant and the anesthetic and, and it takes, a, well, 24 hours or more for the bacteria to go in. So if you... If you can find the tick at the end of the day, if you do a bit of a search, you'll be all right. But at one to one and a half millimeters, it's pretty easy to miss. That's, I think, the big... No one's going to miss something the size of a dime hanging on your, your leg, right, or on your foot. You're not missing that. Uh, but it's the little ones, the nymphs, that are going to going to be missed. So what about pets? You cuddle the dog and then you get it? Is that how that works? That's a good question. There's no reason for a tick to leave a dog and go on on a person because the ticks getting blood. It's it's a good place to be, and it's a large mammal. So there's a, I don't see why a tick would do that. Uh, they're not designed to to go from one animal to another like that, are they? I did hear a very very interesting experiment. There was a grad student in California, and her project was looking at how heat uh, affected where ticks go and who they uh, who they um, latch on to. And so they had these booths set up with a human on one side and a dog on the other with a basically a barrier in between that the ticks could get through. And as they increased the temperature inside the booth, the tick went towards the human. Oh, so when it was hot, they were less likely to go to the dog and more likely to go to the human in hot, higher temperatures, which was another one of these sort of you know, is climate change affecting uh, affecting their behavior, which I just thought that was really fascinating. Did they leave the dog? Were they attached to the dog? Uh, no, I think they just like put the ticks in to see which direction they would go in. Who they like best. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> What's the uh, tastiest treat? So the climate change angle is curious because it's not necessarily going to be an increase in temperature on a daily level, but an increase in the growing season or a different climate zones. So that's why I'm rather being cautious in my answer. I don't think we're necessarily going to get hotter days in the summer so much as earlier summers and, and, and uh, later falls as a possible. Also possibly, you know, still extremes in terms of colder winters, which is part of the modeling. There's no question the climate change is going to affect distribution, but I think it's a crapshoot to say how. Yeah. I do have a question about when you talk about um, 
was it questing when they're yeah, waiting? Questing, yeah. So when they talk about different like repellents and, and DEET or something like that, does that work? Or if you walk by, does it matter what repellent you have on you? Or are they just going to grab on anyway? Or would they not grab on if you were wearing some of these uh, insect repellents? Uh, the study I read, 50% of ticks fell off or let go or dropped off the skin if there's DEET on the skin. So 50% in the study where they'd actually place the ticks on a part of the arm where there wasn't any DEET. And as it crawled up to where the DEET was, half of them fell off. Uh, 20% continued into the DEET uh, area from that part of your arm. But if you put the DEET on your trouser cuffs and on your socks and on your calves, um, you're, you're keeping the tick numbers off you. That's There's other repellents, yeah. but deep, deep works, right? <laughs> There's no so reason to lower half that. of the body. You think you deep if you're in shorts? Just yeah. wherever you're going to be brushing vegetation, yeah, because that that's where they'll be on that vegetation. Yeah. On, on, the the low, on the lower vegetation. Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, they're not going to be yeah. in the trees or shrubs or anything. They're okay. going to be on the grasses. Do ticks have predators? Oh yeah. What sure. gets rid of them? <laughs> there's all sorts of wasps that lay eggs in the ticks and there's there's no nutrition that gets away uh, unchallenged out there <laughs> so wasps are a good thing is what you're telling me well tiny tiny wasps there are parasitic wasps that will uh, that will go after everything species specific there certainly are for the ticks as well okay so let, let me understand this. So the, so in Ontario, or in Canada in general, I think about 18% of ticks have Borrelia. But in Ontario, it's a bit higher, around 20%, I think. Yeah. Now, when ticks start off their their cycle of life, they don't have that bacteria. They're not, they're not created with it, right? They're not, they have to get the bacteria, which right. I think they get from mice. Yes, that's right. The The first stage goes out to mice. They get their blood meal from the mice, They get and then they get the Borrelia. And then as they become an adolescent and they're questing on the grass, then, they're, then they can latch onto a human and, and then transfer that Borrelia. Is there some way to control, because I'm thinking, you know, because Lyme disease un, undiagnosed and untreated can have some devastating consequences. Is there some way to, to get the source to treat Mike, can we put anti-Borrelia stuff that the, in mice food? Like, I don't know. How do you how do you get the first stage so that it doesn't get to humans instead of waiting to treat it with doxycycline once it reaches a human? I'm just trying to understand that cycle of the transfer of Borrelia. Uh, I actually don't know, but that certainly seems a very plausible solution. Uh, maybe you could target the deer, which would be easier than targeting mice, I think, just numerically. Um a reduction of deer numbers actually has a concomitant reduction in tick density and tick numbers uh, up to a point. I mean, you need to reduce them considerably. So especially in an area like Long Point where there's been a lot of deer uh, because they're not harvested. But if in areas where deer are actively harvested, I'd be curious to know if there's much effect at reducing the number because the density of deer is lower. Well, it, it does sort of, maybe this is for another day, but then I wonder if these deer and these mice have Borrelia, how come they don't have Lyme disease? Yeah, yeah. Or maybe <laughs> you know, they do. just resistant to it. I, I find this very fascinating because dogs can get Lyme disease and be quite affected yeah. by it. Yeah. Lots of devastating consequences in dogs. So how do these deer and mice live full lives with Borrelia? That's, I can, I can do my own research on that. 
That's a great question. I don't know if anyone's looked at that. Well, there's a reason it's brought chicken for you. And the next time you're having your deer meat, think about it. Maybe he lets you shoot him. <laughs> because he was a little crazy, right? Maybe he didn't run away, right? They've never let me do that. <laughs> All right. So, so Lyme disease is important, of course, but there are other ticks across the country. I mean, and more devastating and fatal, um, like the spotted ticks, right? The spotted fever ticks, the Rocky Mountain spotted fever. And these tick fevers are a big deal if people get them. Um, same treatment as doxycycline if you get it early enough. Always with fever, though, it seems, right? So they're fever and rash. So um, you know, tell us a bit about what you know about those, uh, th- those rickettsia-bearing ticks. Like Melinda, I grew up at a time when we had no ticks at all. So this is a brand new area for me, and I'm having to change my own personal behavior because there was never a moment when I was younger that I couldn't go into the bush and have to ever worry or think about ticks. So it's it's the okay. novelty of even having to check my legs for tick nymphs that, that's a change in behavior. I've never had to do that. But it's an awareness that our cousins south of the border certainly have, but but I don't think yeah. we have yet. Yeah, so we had Rocky Mountain spotted fever, and then we had Lyme disease. It became endemic. And then the other more dramatic tick illnesses have become less uh, talked about. Now, I had heard that that there have been these, the Rocky Mountain spotted fever tick, whatever, what's the tick that like identified in Canada because it does travel. Oh, for sure. West Coast of BC. I don't know, I guess it's prevalent, but it's certainly present in our part of the world. There's a, a, a climate wall that's been identified by modelers as preventing, well, at least the scapularis, the, the tick we were previously talking about, that's going to prevent them from going too far north, even though they'll be carried by passerines. They're being carried by birds for the north, but they're not establishing per se. So you could think of it this way, is that ticks are constantly being deposited all over Ontario or all over the place by birds. Whether they can establish and become endemic is driven by climate and the other factors that are part of their ecology. So the thing we have to talk about uh, before we leave this topic is doxycycline. Everybody, regardless of, of age, that you think has been bitten by a tick, can be treated with doxycycline. So that's something, before we used to leave kids out of the doxycycline discussion, um, yeah. but I think it's an important thing to remind people of. And it's certainly a, a safe treatment. We use it every day for many different conditions, yeah. right? So it's a bit, there's yeah. a lot of comfort in prescribing that and... Yeah, I think I think it's just really important that we understand, like as dermatologists, how to counsel uh, patients because it's been it's changing. Like I said, from the time we were in medical school and residency, this this yeah. wasn't counseling that we did, especially in Ontario, Quebec, Nova Scotia, these provinces where this is becoming more of an issue. We need to one counsel our patients and two know what to look for. Uh, have a low uh, threshold yes, for treat testing. early because that makes it early. Treat very early. Yeah. For, for, for testing. Yeah. And well, you're that lady that came in with the infected tick that you talked about. I gave her doxycycline right away. Yeah. We give it to her now instead of the Keflex. Right. When right. I, well, when it change your behavior, your whole thinking yes. now, you're sort of thinking, Oh, I wonder, you know, it's a, right. Right. It's a crusted species, an outdoors person. I have a you know, doxycycline that works for staff. Um, my clock, you know, just away you go. You give her doxycycline now, I would think. Yeah, no, for sure. That's, you would that's change your whole uh, prescribing behavior. 
yeah. based on this high index of suspicion, certainly at this time of the year, what, late spring, early summer, right? And uh, and it's so it's great to know. Well, number one, like the covering up, the tucking the pant legs in your yeah, socks. It's it's yeah. But also the DEET, that's really interesting to know that there is some benefit for those patients yeah. who are very, um, you know, they're outdoors, they're camping all the time. That's a yeah. good thing to know. David, concentration make a difference at the DEET? Because we have 15 and higher, right? We have... Yeah, you need the higher concentration. Certainly, you need the higher concentration for it to do anything. You can, yeah, you know. And I wonder about uh, Melinda, uh, kids. What, what do you tell parents about kids in DEET? I haven't been telling them anything, but I'm going to have to figure out what I'm going to tell them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, the idea is, of course, it's like sunscreen, right? Mm-hmm. Physical protection first. Yes. Uh, and, and, then, uh, and then the other thing is uh, seasoned outdoors people check each other every night. Every single night looking for these things. How, how long does a tick have to be on board to cause a problem? The literature that I've read says 48 hours. So a long um, time. Uh, so you know, so you've really got a little time to check that. It's not, yeah, yeah. if you go to the end of the day, you're fine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's so like, it's check that day. You don't have to stop every hour. Yeah, no, you don't have to do that. The trouble with the, the children is they can get up under the hairlines too. So you have to check that, right? Okay. You won't be able to see in the in the hair, especially if they're playing crawling around on the ground. Yeah. It, it can get up there. Well, with us, we don't generally crawl around on the ground. So we're checking our, our limbs. But with children, you'd have to check under the hairlines. Okay. But I, I do find it so fascinating that every case I've had, has not actually had a tick. And I have had other patients come in with a tick on them. One guy, they thought it was melanoma on his back, this black uh-huh. spot. And then as soon as we got the, the dermatoscope, we're like, well, that's not a, this thing's moving. I actually have a little video of this this tick moving around on this guy's back. So that had to be removed. But I we've had a few, you know, we had one patient and one of my colleagues did who pulled out her own tick removal kit. Like she was prepared because she's an outdoors person and they, they carry it around with them because they, that it is something that they've had to. What's in the kit? I think it's just special. The tweezer, right? Yeah. So the, to remove them, it's right? Especially for ticks. Yeah. yeah. And then the to keep it, you can send it off yeah. and, and you can send it to genetics. I don't know if you have on the podcast where we can put the link where people can go to that website and see where to send this, where to send the tick so that it can be, uh, tr- like logged and they it will yeah. be tested what what it's carrying um, and then put on a uh, sort of a map of Canada so that they we can track where the ticks are and where there may be a higher concentration of Borrelia. And the other site is etic.ca, etic.ca, and they'll identify it for you and show you pictures and so it's quite cool. When you take those ticks off, you have to get them right where the mouth parts are going in. To okay. yourself. Yeah. Like don't you can't grab the tick body and pull. You just leave the uh, the okay. head area behind and the mouth part still in you, and that's not a good thing. So you got to get them right where they go into your skin and and pinch and then draw them out gently to get the all those mouth parts out because they embed that right in your skin. So they and, it, and it's barbed so they don't oh. fall out. Yeah, I think it gets cemented right in there with the the saliva has these different secretions that just latch on and yeah. yeah. So soap and water after alcohol. What do you do? What kills Borrelia topically? Or is it like a snake bite where you cut it and suck it? <laughs> I don't think we do that anymore. I don't do know. <laughs> I mean, what do you do? Right. Um, I was just wondering if this, uh, this tick removal kit, if they had 
scalpel blade where you slice open the thing and squeeze it or let it bleed or whatever. I just think good forceps that will meet rather than uh, yes. things that pinch. Yeah. But that will meet um, like pliers do. And then just up and back, apparently. Right? I've never yeah. proved one. Yeah. Okay. All right. So have we exhausted ticks already? Are there bugs? I want I, I, I can't leave a bug talk without talking about bed bugs. Ooh. Just you so don't want them. Common a discussion in in, in in travelers and what do you what, you got anything to say about that as an entomologist? Yeah, when I was a kid, I was bed bug hunting because I wanted one for my collection. I was about twelve years old, and I was checking mattresses on this general garbage day when people were throwing out all their junk. And I went to some neighborhoods I thought at least would be potentials, you know, because uh, there was lots of bedding out, and I got one. I still have that bed bug from. Uh, the seventies in my collection. I'm quite proud of it. Uh, we went through a dry period where we didn't see bed bugs, but now they're back with a vengeance. Uh, yeah. We have them in some, some, some of the apartment buildings in town have some pretty bad infestations. Now, when I see a patient with bed bug bites that I am suspecting, I, the first yeah. thing I do is I look at their address to see if they live in one of these buildings. Yeah. And it's not apartments as per se. It's not, uh, it's just that you create a metapopulation environment where you just keep chasing bed bugs all around through the through the infrastructure, the wiring and the plumbing as you try to treat built, uh, apartment by apartment. And the bed bugs are really good at it. There's another fascinating angle, which is it's called traumatic insemination. The females don't have a dedicated genital orifice. So the males breed them by driving a hole in them. Uh, they They mate. The females find it unpleasant, uh, which doesn't really surprise anyone. And so they get out of there. Of course, now they're, um, they're gravid. They have eggs, uh, but they leave that space. So it's a, it's a brilliant system to drive bed bugs to disperse. <laughs> and so they're good at that. That's what they do. They disperse. Interesting. So how do we, how do we fight them? To get rid of them? Well, they're not invincible, right? They're just, you just have to kill them bit by bit. Any kind of insect, if you kill them faster than they lay eggs, they'll die out. But people want an instant fix. You're not going to get that. Put your bedding in the dryer, everything in the dryer. The dryer temperatures kill all stages. And as long as you're washing linens and bedding, you'll slowly drive them to extinction in your in your residence. So I'm a traveler. Melinda's mm-hmm. a traveler. We bring them home. Um, mm-hmm. And... and uh, do you throw? Do you burn the suitcase or just put it outside in the winter? What do you do? You can put them outside in Western Canada for the winter, but here it won't work because it's not cold enough. I was putting stuff in the freezer, but a paper came out. And we weren't getting the temperatures, uh, <laughs> so they can live in the freezer. They can live in the snow in southern Ontario, so that won't work. You need the heat. So dryer at hot. Yeah, hair dryer will kill them. A hair dryer. Sure, well, you just go through your seams of your luggage with a hair dryer. That'll kill them. Okay. All stages. Okay, so uh, extension cords for hotels. You plug it in, take the hair dryer, they supply it through the bed. <laughs> I was at an entomologist conference, and me, me from Ontario, this fine, and this was in Florida, and we were all medical entomologists. Our specialty is biting insects, bed bugs, and they announced, uh, "Has everyone checked their hotel room for bed bugs yet?" And all around me, people's hands went up. I mean, I didn't. And uh, then they started to tell me stories at their universities in their residences, how they were all infested with bed bugs. 
I found that very telling because all those universities had medical entomologists. <laughs> That's really funny. I went through a period where I was keeping my luggage in the bathtub in the hotel room so that because the, the bed bugs can't crawl into there and I didn't want them hopping in my luggage. So I just stored my luggage in the in the bathtub. Well, they will crawl across the ceiling and drop down. Oh, oh you're hard now. FYI. Now you can shower. And they'll hide in the, the behind the electric light switches. Their favorite place is this binding of books. So anyone who gets books, secondhand books or new books or goes to a library or sits on a bus or train or plane <laughs> is prone to get bed bugs. I've only seen one bed bug. It was in the binding and I check all the bindings of if I buy an old, a used book and I, I found it in the binding in the like behind uh, the spine of, of a book I'd ordered. Wow. On Amazon. Uh, no, it was through bookfinder.com. Yeah. yeah wow. Okay. Well, that's <laughs> fascinating. So, yeah. Okay. So as a traveler, what do you do at your hotel room? Uh, well, I do the same as Melinda said. I put my kit up away from the floor. Uh, so at least it won't go in the kit or you hope. Do you use the fold out ones of the things they give you to put your suitcase on? Yeah, sure. That's what you're using? Okay. Yeah, and it's, it's all psychological. The bed bugs will hide and everything. They're going into your luggage if they're there at all, but at least it cheers <laughs> you up to think you're doing something. <laughs> so does a gin and tonic. But, uh, you know, <laughs> so the mini bar is the cure for bed bugs. Yeah, you might have exactly. them, but you won't, you won't care, right? Okay. Yeah. Okay. So in that same vein, uh, I, I can't let you go again without spiders. Oh, yeah. I mean, Melinda and I see... Many people come in, oh, it's a spider bites. I got spider bites. And I, and frankly, I don't know. Uh, I've never seen a spider bite thing, other than the big guys, right? Um, right. I've grabbed spiders my whole life and never been bitten. I've hailed spiders. I catch them with my bare hands. I know they can bite me, but they never do. Uh, but people send me things in the mail, like or email or packages of, yeah. of skin scrapings, and they tell me they're spider bites. Uh I, I don't buy that. <laughs> it doesn't make sense. Melinda, do you get lots of spider bites in your world? Yeah, they're they're it's I think it's a, like a fallback explanation for lots of people. I, they're almost happy when you tell them it was a spider bite or if they yeah. suspect it's a spider bite, that's what they want to hear. I'm I'm not sure why. But sometimes you know, they're happier to have a spider bite than to have a bed bug bite. I think there's a stigma attached with bed bugs and if you say it's a spider I I wouldn't say it's a spider bite unless it was, but if they ex you know, in their own mind, except that it was a spider bite, they're almost happier than than you telling them, oh, those are actually bed bug bites. Yeah. What can happen is you can get dead pigeons or birds or squirrels or mice in your wall or your chimney. And once that bird's dead, the lice on it go looking for something else to go to, to live on. And so you can get bit a lot as a, by something leaving a dead mouse trying to go on. Now, because we're not mice, it can't live on us, but it will bite us and leave uh, welts. Well, hang on a minute. David, you got me worried about flies from our last discussion. <laughs> now I'm worried about little things into my chimney and dying at the walls of my house. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you not be worried about ticks. Yeah, yeah. worry about the ticks. You're These other about the things. Ticks. Okay. Are of no consequence. They're the multitude of little red things that somehow appear on your arm once in a while. Yeah. If you leave them alone, they go away. Okay. Well, Melinda, any other bug stuff you want to talk about? 
I guess the last thing we'd, we'd mentioned last time were, were the maggots in wound care. Is this is this still a thing in the entomology world? Do you guys talk about this? A little bit. We, we mentioned it because the secretion of the maggots stops the, the flesh from necrotizing and they're able to eat right up to the healthy flesh. And then the wounds actually heal better. And this was seen in various wars, starting with the Crimean Civil War, First War, uh, and it's used therapeutically. So we talk about it as an interesting case. You also get people who have myiasis, maggots living on wounds, um, if they've been neglected. And then you, you can use that as evidence of neglect or abuse. Yeah. It's not something you want. But screens have changed the story a lot. Before screens, they used to go into people's nasal cavities. And that was very unpleasant. Uh, there's a lot of pioneer doctors talking about uh, maggots being inside people's nasal cavities and then coming out. So, so there's no therapeutic use right now with maggots. Yeah. Yeah, there is. I think if you have a, would you get like, is there a company that, that grows and sells like, are there wound clinics that are linked up with entomology departments? How does it work? That I don't know. I know they're reared. So they will be clean. Yeah. Uh, I know the larger centers have them. I'm not sure about Canada. I certainly know in, in the U.S. The papers I've read reference hospitals in New York City that are using this as a last-ditch effort uh, effectively. And so there is a literature on this, and it is still being used. But there's a bit of resistance from patients, uh, you can imagine. Yeah. <laughs> and I guess the other thing we talk about is lice. Uh, yeah. Having gone through that, in the past couple of years with my kids. Yeah, they uh, had lice at school, right? And yeah, forgetting yeah. they got it from school. Yeah, again, it's a metapopulation situation. You have density and the lice will go from head to head because they're they're yeah. eventually going to get chased off the head they're on. And if they want to persist, they have to be able to disperse and spread. If you create the density, you'll create the parasites that are associated with density. It, it's pretty basic. <laughs> and there's no point in sending those children home because they've been spreading lice before they even knew they had them, you know, for about 20 days. So we're seeing drug resistance. Um, what are you treating with? The older literature talked about kerosene, uh, but I don't <laughs> think, I don't think. Well, we, yeah, we kerosene, and you light it, right? I mean, it gets no, 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 lice for sure. Like droplets, emulsified in water to create very fine droplets, but yeah. uh, it's not recommended now. For good reason. Yeah, for good reason. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Melinda, how are you going to manage the head lice in your kids when they come home? Yeah, well, there's uh, there has been this drug resistance, and you know, not everybody is happy to be slathering on Nicks. So, there are a lot of new products out there. One is NIDA, NYDA, which is really a dimethicone-based product that you put on the hair. It sort of suffocates the lice, and and actually, it worked very well for my kids and. Uh, with the nitpicking, with the special comb, where we were able to treat it, no one had to get their head shaved. Uh, it was it wasn't as bad of an experience as I thought when I first found the the nits on their hair. There's a terror that seems to grip you when you see nits. You think, oh no, this is inevitable. Or, but again, if you can kill them faster than they're than the eggs are deposited, yeah. they they'll they'll go. It's nice too because this this product that can be used down to age of two, right? So there's no. There's no concern because it doesn't have any pesticides and it's there's nothing neurotoxic. It's it, it's just dimethicone and, and it works. Perfect. 
okay, we're running out of bugs. Well, just your house will be full of things that live there with you. So you never do run out of bugs. And thought correctly, you don't actually live in your house. You're never alone. You're surrounded by thousands and thousands of insects that are sharing the space with you. Some you know, some you don't, but they're all there. Well, thank you for that. (laughs) And with that, um, we'll say goodnight. (laughs) Goodnight. Goodnight. Well, I hope you enjoyed this special Editor's Choice edition of JCMS Author Interviews. If you liked it, uh, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or write us a review. Tell your friends about us on social media and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. So until next time, I'm Dr. Kirk Barber. Be good to each other.